Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Never Alone. This is episode two of the audio series. Um, we are going to be revisiting anxiety, uh, the topic anxiety. Um, anxiety is a general term for frequent bouts of nervousness, fear, apprehension, or worrying, which appear without reasonable cause. Um, and we've got a few statistics in terms of anxiety. It's the most common health mental health condition in Australia. In on average, one in four people, one in three women, and one in five men will experience anxiety at some stage in their life. Um, we thought we'd revisit this topic since now we're on the audio series. We want to touch on um, all the topics we've already visited with different guests. Um, See, so yeah, I'm, I'm your host, Joe Ambridge, and we have, uh, re- sorry, um, psychotherapist and relationship counsellor, um, Mark Fielding, is my co-host. Hi, Mark. Hi, yeah. Hi, Joe. Um, and today we have a uh, guest who's going to speak to us about her life living with anxiety, uh, Victoria Van Stone, I think that's how you say it. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, now, anxiety is a big topic we've talked about quite frequently in our projects in terms of Lion's Tale. We've had Anxious Me that came out, Anxious Me Too, which was actually with Mark. Um, and we've obviously touched on it previously in Hashtag Never Alone in the video podcast. Um, and now we're going to hear Victoria's story. So, Victoria, I'll just give us a little insight into your life with anxiety. So I was, uh, hello everybody, nice to nice to be here with you, thanks so much for inviting me on. Um, I, I um, was a party girl all my life, um, growing up um, in a family of, of quite heavy drinkers um, and I grew up in the 80s and 90s where drinking alcohol was obviously in that sort of ladette culture. I lived in Brighton and, and I was, you know, a bit of a party girl, hung around with everybody who was drinking the same amount as me. So my drinking habit never really got, um, I never really stuck out like a sore thumb. Everybody else was drinking around me. So therefore my drinking habit sort of got absorbed into the crowd. And that happened for many, many years of my life. I, I drank to excess and experienced anxiety a lot when I was hungover. But by the Sunday night, I kind of my hangover would be gone. I'd have a Bloody Mary down the pub with my mates and I'd start a Monday morning feel, feeling slightly anxious, but able to, to function in a normal way um, until the weekend came and I'd do it all again. So it was kind of like a, a, a binge drinker, I would call myself. Um, my drinking was, was uh, probably more than most people. I was always kind of the last person to be to be dragged off any dance floor. I was pretty happy and I thought I was just, my drinking habit was very normal. Um, as I grew older, my, my drinking escalated and the panic started to escalate a little bit more. But it wasn't until I had children when anxiety really kicked in for me. I, I had my first child at 34 and until then I'd pretty much drunk my entire life until the day I got pregnant. In fact, my, my wedding day three months are, when I was three months pregnant was my first real sober social event. Um, I hadn't really experienced um, going out or, or conversing or dancing or anything like that without a drink before. So it was, 
I enjoyed my wedding because I could probably, you know, I could remember it. It was the first event I, I, I'm able to remember in the sort of first 26 years of my life, which is kind of sad, but hey. Um, yes, yeah, so I had a, my first child um, and I was determined that I wouldn't change and I wouldn't let this baby change who I was. I wanted to continue being this party girl. I wanted to, to not let this baby change my life. And, and unfortunately, or fortunately, I think probably more fortunately now, but unfortunately at the time, I, I considered the baby to kind of be the one who sort of interrupted the party. Um, and I tried to continue parenting and drinking. I was, I was a classic like mum to wine, sitting at home, um, you know, with the strain of the day, the toll of motherhood upon me, leaning on wines at the end of the evening when the baby had gone to bed. And then at weekends, I was kind of going out doubly hard. The, the sort of gap between my, my going out, I wasn't going out much, but I, I was definitely drinking more when I, when I went out because the gap between, between my drinks sort of accentuated my indulgence because I would, I would be excited about the weekend, about getting some freedom away from motherhood. I mean, I love that baby, but I just wanted a bit of freedom every now and again. So I tried to blend the two lives for a while. I tried to drink and party and, and try and be a good mum. And unfortunately, the, the drinking kind of caught up with me um, in the form of panic attack. Um, each, each Sunday morning, I'd lie in bed with the normal side effects of a hangover, a headache. But as, as the weeks went past, panic and shame and guilt all combined um, led to me having severe anxiety every time I drank. Um, it was guilt because I couldn't look after the baby properly on the Sunday and I had to listen to my husband leave the house and take, take the baby out for a walk and I physically couldn't do it. One, because I was hungover and two, because I was so full of anxiety that all I did all day was sit in bed with my finger on my pulse thinking I was going to die. And then I would actually repeat that the following weekend. I didn't know another way of being, which is why at that time I didn't stop. I couldn't fathom a life without drinking, even though the, the anxiety was so debilitating. I, I just couldn't understand how I could possibly ever not drink because it was so a part of my life. Um, but this continued until the anxiety started to creep in to every day. Um, and I did a little bit of self-medication here and there, whereas my anxiety would build up and I'd, I'd, the, the wines would numb it out. I mean, that's a very, you know, very common problem, I think, is if, if people have anxiety, then the wine is kind of the cure. Um, but I'd always seen wine as a sort of a excelsior in a way. It was sort of like a drug that I saw just made everybody happy. And then I started to question them, why don't I feel happy? Why, why, am, I this, why am I experiencing this sort of torment? when actually I should just be being a good mum. It's my world's kind of collided. Um, and the questions kept coming up, bubbling up to the surface every Sunday, lying in bed on my own with a stonking headache and having to run to the toilet every five minutes to, to be sick with a baby crying in the room next door. I knew that obviously that wasn't the right thing to be doing. Um, I tried to cut down. I tried various you know, techniques of waters between wines and dry flies and sober Octobers, but they all kind of ended up being flushed down the drain with, with a, shot of, uh, a shot of tequila. So I, I tried and I failed for many years and I lived with anxiety for four more years until I got pregnant again. 
Um, and I had a lovely window of sobriety of that nine months of being pregnant. It was actually a relief to be able just to, to let the anxiety go, the booze go, and actually to be myself again. And during that nine months, I got a feeling of who I really was, and I got a feeling of, of who I possibly could be beneath the layer of, of beer and bravado, really. Um, so I, during that time, I promised myself I wouldn't go back to drinking, but six weeks after the baby was born, I, I repeated the same patterns all over again, and the anxiety came straight back, like an old friend sort of banging down my door. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hold the door closed. It was just all over me every time I drank, like waves of fear and, and, and sadness and, and depression running over my body. It was a terrible time. And so obviously, I, that was the last time, actually that was the last time pretty much that I had a drink. I think I had a couple of more beers here and there. But on that day, six weeks after my second baby was born, I just came to the point where I, I decided I'd had enough. Um, I walked into the lounge and said to my husband, I can't do this anymore. I, I'm either going to lose you, lose the baby or lose myself. There wasn't really any choices. The drinking had to stop and the anxiety had to be dealt with. And I realized then that I couldn't do it on my own. So I said to my husband, I think I need help. I've got a serious problem here. And I'm continuing doing a pattern that I hate, even though it's making me very mentally unwell and I can't solve my problem. I mean, I, I was the creator of the problem, so therefore it was very difficult for me to address. Um, so, yeah, I reached out for help and uh, here I am today. Um, I actually had another baby since then, a, a little surprise baby at 42 after I'd been two years sober. And my life has changed dramatically. I've, I'm, I'm much happier. The anxiety has, has now gone. And, you know, I've, I've walked into a new sober world, which is something I could never have fathomed before. So the anxiety is, has been cured by the, by the lack of alcohol in my system. And can I just... Uh, thank you. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, Jeff. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on something you were saying, Victoria. I guess when, when, when you first started kind of telling your story, and, and I guess, you know, you've been through kind of a real journey, you know, I mean, I, I wondered whether the drinking was kind of masking the anxiety, but it's really interesting that it doesn't seem that that's the case, that when you had the kind of the, the, the nine months of sobriety and kind of, you know, realised who you were, that the anxiety wasn't present there at all. I, I no. thought that was really interesting because, I mean, often, you know, it can be the other way around that people drink in order to, you know, to cover up kind of things like social anxiety. But that doesn't seem like it was the case with you, really. It was the drink that was actually causing the panic and the anxiety. Yeah, I think it was. I think when I went and had therapy, obviously I found out a lot of reasons. I mean, I, mean, I dug very deep into understanding why. And actually the reason I found out I was a big drinker was because of anxiety, like a slight social anxiety was why I was drinking in the first place. Mm. So as soon as I had the drink inside me, I was like the party girl that everybody wanted, the one with the punchlines and the, you know, the best clubs, the best VIP passes. But beneath that, I think I was scared of who I was. There had been a few situations where I'd been rejected in my life. And with therapy, we dug up all those sort of wriggly worms from my past. And it turned out that really the drink was actually covering up the fact that I probably was a little bit introvert. And I was very, very scared of losing people. So people that I loved. Um, that I'd, I'd had an incident at school where I'd been a bit bullied and my friends hadn't spoken to me again. 
and it was incredible to find out via via a therapist that those little things that had that happened throughout my life had actually had made me feel uh, a lack of self-worth which had then led me to drink because I wanted to people to like me it's a lot of people pleasing and all of these other reasons but I really at the base of it I think there was some anxiety originally which is what I used the alcohol for so it was always there and it was just you know the, the magnifying glass went on it when the children came along, but it, I think it had always been there throughout my life. Can, can I ask a little bit about, about the help that you got? So you kind of went into therapy and, you know, really kind of explored, you know, as you say, kind of lots of the reasons perhaps that were in the background, you know, for why you started drinking. And I'm just interested if, if it's okay, as much yeah. as you're, you know, you're happy to share, just, just what your kind of experience of the therapy was and what was helpful, maybe what was less helpful. Because I, the first option obviously was that I thought maybe I should go to AA, but I didn't really seem to fit in that category because I, I felt that my drinking wasn't as extreme perhaps as some, as you'd imagine, I've found out since that obviously the word alcoholic has a huge spectrum. But at that first stage, I was considering AA, but I feel like I felt like I didn't really fit. So actually, I just found a local counselling lady who who took me through a process where I think one of the first sessions were she asked me to draw a picture of what I imagine my perfect future to be. Um, if, if, if I could have a dream of a perfect life, what would it be? And, and, and I drew a picture of me in a hammock surrounded by my children, you know, a sunset in the background. No alcohol was involved. It was just this kind of ideal life. And she explained to me that that was a possibility and that the person, I needed somebody else. It, it was all inside of me. That's, that was what the interesting thing was about my therapy, the therapy that I had, that the answers were all there. I just needed somebody else to to put them all in order for me to understand why I was why I had become the person I had become. And then once I understood that, all the little things that had happened in my past, no, no major trauma. I'll 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 admit there was nothing, you know, there was nothing terrible that happened to me. I was from a very loving family, grew up in a very, you know, happy environment. But there were little things that affected my heart a little bit that made me feel sad. And I think they sort of, they piled up on top of each other over a very long period. But what, um, it was, the lady's name was Diane Spencer. And what she taught me was to, to learn who I was, then to break it down, dig everything up, look at it, and then start afresh. So it was like clearing a piece of land um, so digging up all those horrible weeds, all those, all those wiggly worms, and then starting again and building a new foundation like you would a house, a new house. So I, 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 took, I took myself apart. I cracked myself open and I looked inside to find out where all the pieces fitted together. And then once they were together, I decided to put that aside and start afresh and become the person that I really truly knew I was inside, which was, you know, a very happy... Um, together, positive person, not this person hiding in a bedroom every Sunday, feeling like she's going to die. So it was it was a long process. I'm making it sound quite easy here, but it was a long process um, of a few, I think it was over six, six months altogether, 
where we just literally spread everything out on a table and picked out what my problems were and how to solve them and then how to build from that. Yeah, and I, I really like the kind of metaphor of the kind of clearing landscape and, you know, and I, I guess, you know, I mean, a good therapy, you know, is often that, isn't it? Just kind of looking back and, you know, working out, you know, why the patterns we, you know, that are showing up in our lives now, why they're there, you know, and it, yeah. and, and I guess, you know, just to, you know, agree with what you say, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, it's doesn't have to be you know an enormous trauma you know some people do experience terrible trauma but it can be small things you know i mean yeah, yeah. i wanted to pick up on the bullying you know something that joe and i have talked to you know talked a lot about you know i mean people often you know kind of dismiss the, these kind of things you know getting bullied at school and they think well this was years ago and but all of these things i think as you say can have a real kind of chipping effect on our self-esteem definitely yeah, yeah. i mean it's a long there's so many little things that you don't realise are perhaps affecting you. Um, I think there's a point I'd really like to make, actually, that um, for me, the, the fear of reaching out was for so many reasons. The fear of getting help, it, you've just reminded me of something, is about the traumas that you don't... Sometimes people don't feel like their trauma or their life isn't worthy of help. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I didn't, I think that's why I didn't reach out for a long time because I felt like my drinking wasn't extreme enough, as I said before, or that my trauma wasn't perhaps big enough. I didn't think, I thought, I thought I'd be laughed out of the door of an AA meeting or, you know, a counsellor's office because I, I felt like, God, they're going to think I'm a right twit coming in here with this lovely life and these lovely children and this lovely family. Yet I had a problem and my problem was, was big enough for me to, to reach out for help and deserve help. And I think that's sometimes a really big problem in society. There's a, there's a group of people stuck between the pub and an AA meeting. Um, there's a real kind of broad spectrum of people who, who are questioning their drinking habits yet are too afraid to reach out because they might not think that they are worthy enough or that their problem isn't bad enough. But I think what I have to say about that is what I learned is that every problem is deserving of help and, no matter, it's not a competition, and, and luckily it's not because the, you're only there, and you, you're only there with you and your counsellor, and those counsellors have heard your story a thousand times, and they will understand what you're going through, and and the only thing you're going to do by getting help or therapy is to make yourself better, and my my aim was to make myself better so that my children wouldn't have to experience the same problems that I did growing up. Um, so if you, if you don't think about it as a personal thing, about whether you are worthy or not, it's worthy for the people that, that you are influencing, I would say. So the trauma, the level of trauma is irrelevant, I think is what I'm trying to say. It's just, if it's a problem, it's a problem and you deserve help. Um, am I right? Uh, sorry, Victoria. Um, am I right in saying you're originally from the UK? Yeah, I'm from Reading. <laughs> Ah, okay, yeah, I'm from London too. Um, do you feel when you moved over here, um, uh, anything like any of the changes or anything affecting your mental health, or kind of made you want to drink again, or did you stop drinking before you moved to uh, Australia? My, my, I moved to Australia ten years ago, so I was still drinking. Um, I was still drinking when I moved here. Um, 
so no, nothing affected me affected me from the move. I just carried on <laughs> as I always had done. So yeah, I, um, I've lived in Australia now for ten years, and it wasn't really yeah. until the children were born that that my mental health became unbalanced. I would say. Yeah, um, I was you, and you obviously started having like the the help in Australia because I was going to ask whether you feel like the resources and support here is probably a lot better than the UK. I so that's why. Yeah, I would think. Um, I mean, for me, it was just a matter. I think for everybody, actually, I don't know what the support system's like in the UK because I haven't really experienced it. But I do think. I mean, the the hand was there. It was just that I had to reach out, connect with it. I think that's the. Um, I think that's the key is that there's always going to be someone waiting for you to 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 take your hand um no matter whether it's AA a counselor your local GP um I think I could have gone to see a, you know there was probably a hundred people I, I could have scrolled through that would have been able to help me it just so happened the first one I clicked on was the one that worked um yeah but the right person it was right. just happened to be There's the right person i do think it is a lot about finding that right person yeah, yeah. i definitely found that because um, i have I've had help in the uk and i had help here and when i originally moved here i was seeing someone like a free psychiatrist that was part of the doctor's like surgery that i was going to and now i see someone that i paid to go and see and the the contrast is like like she's so much better than the other lady that I used to see, oh, and yeah, that's good. like there's more resource resources here in terms of between here and the UK. Right. The wait, um, I was on a wait list for a very long time in the UK. Um, one example was I had a a breakdown in like 2018 in like December sort of time, and I didn't see someone till February, oh. um, like properly till February. Um, whereas here, because you're paying, I think it kind of speeds up the process. You get referred to someone straight away, and you're, and also with the free when you, I got kind of pushed straight towards. It doesn't matter in what mental state you're in. Whereas I feel like in the UK, you'd have to be maybe like a risk to yourself to be pushed forward. Yeah, and that does. That seems like so far down the end of the line, doesn't it? Like to to have to reach that point before somebody reaches out to you it's 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 quite depressing really i did have one experience when i was living in brighton um in in my very early 20s i did suffer a little bit from anxiety then i think it's more of a coming of age thing um when you're sort of finishing college and you have so many choices and i did experience a little bit of anxiety then and i got referred to the local psych ward actually um in Brighton um, and I walked into the office it was an unpaid um, psychiatrist that I'd gone to see and I was sent to the corner of the room um, quite far away from the quite far away from the guy and I remember him sitting at his table with his back to me and asking me his first question was did I wet the bed as a child uh, and I just remember thinking, oh, God, probably. I'm sure many people wet the bed as a child. I mean, it has no relation to what's going on with me mentally at the moment, but fair enough. I let that one go. And then I think the next question he asked me was, could I name the Queen's children? 
And actually, I couldn't. I couldn't name the car. I was felt really under pressure. And I think I was, I can't remember what I said, but I don't think, I, and I thought, God, he thinks I'm totally mad now because I can't name the Queen's children. And actually, I just got up and walked out. I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. So that was really the only experience I've ever had of a NHS psychiatrist uh, assessing me. And uh, I'm glad I'm, I'm not there to deal with that sort of thing again. Do you, do you feel like you've got a good support network around you now? Like is your husband and like family and friends really supportive and understanding of what anxiety is? And... Yes, for sure. My my husband is the one that really only person who had to witness my anxiety. Um, he was the one who kind of had to talk me down from my panic attacks. And I mean, he couldn't really understand how I would continue drinking, but I don't think he felt like in a position to tell me to stop because I suppose it was so ingrained and such a, a normal thing to do to go out with your mates and get pissed. But I, I have had a massive, massive amount of support. Even the people that I thought would be, I thought a lot of people would be disappointed in me because I was such a reliable drinking partner that I think that I think that I thought that they would be perhaps not want to be friends with me anymore but actually the people that I thought that of are the ones that have been the most supportive but one thing that's really helped is that over here now I've started a sober social group called the sober social for sober curious women um, it's been running about six months now and we have a Facebook group as well and it's it's just for women on you know this vast alcohol spectrum which I've now discovered from from people who have won wine a year that they're questioning to other people who are extreme you know extreme alcoholics so we have all sorts of women yeah. coming people that are still drinking people that have given up and it's just a group of women that we get together once every two weeks and discuss our our journeys and we have speakers and go out for dinners and and that's been a huge support it's just nice you know i love all my my friends and i love all my drinker friends that hasn't changed but it is also nice for me to be able to go out and not feel the pressure of drinking culture upon my shoulders because I do feel like the odd one out. I mean, having a, a 0, 0.0 beer does help me fit in occasionally, but, uh, you know, I may as well just have a glass of milk, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know the feeling. I, um, I don't drink as much here as I would when I was in the UK because I think you probably agree with it. It's quite a big part of culture in the UK where you drink. Massive, yeah. Um, I was going out drinking every weekend, not like excessively or anything, but when I went uh, after I had like a breakdown here like a few years ago, I went back to the UK for a bit and wasn't drinking because I was on medication. And every time I went out, I just didn't want to be there because I wasn't drinking. And I felt like I wasn't the same person I was as when I would have a drink. Um, uh, I started drinking again, but not, I, not excessively, um, but still... And I felt the change, but alcohol used to affect my anxiety and my mental health. It doesn't do it so much now That's good. Um, That's good. as it did. Um, but I definitely think, like, I don't drink as much here. And when I do have a drink, it doesn't really affect my health. And mm. um, there's definitely a massive difference. You kind of feel left out when you're not drinking. Yeah, that is a, um, a problem with, with modern day drinking culture. I mean, there yeah. is a huge movement. This sober curious movement is kind of massive these women especially who are for sort of saying no to to mums that want I mean it's a huge thing happening right now and I didn't discover it until I was probably 18 months sober I did I read a book by Ruby Warrington called Sober Curious 
and other books such as um, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. There's, there's a lot of books, a lot of quitlit out there for people um, that, are, that are moving against modern day drinking culture and trying to create something new, something healthier that we can pass on to our, our kids. You know, the pressure, of, the pressure to drink is so huge and we, we're made to feel like the outsiders, whereas in fact, we're just the ones making a really good choice for ourselves for our mental health and for our anxiety issues. We're the ones doing a good thing. And I think the, the, the culture has to change for and to accept people that don't drink with, with, a, with an embrace because it's, it's a sad, it's not like giving up smoking when you give someone a pat on the back. This is, you, for some reason you get, um, you get ridiculed for giving up drinking, which, which is silly, that needs to change. Yeah, and I think people, you know, I think just to go back to what you were saying about the worry about losing friends, you know, I mean, I think that's quite common, you know, with, with drinking. I mean, in the UK, you know, there's such a strong drinking culture. And I think when people want to step away from that, they worry that, you know, their relationships have been built in some way, you know, on, you know, getting drunk and they're going to lose those relationships. So I think it's really positive, you know, when I say that that wasn't the case and some of the people perhaps you were worried about losing, you know, have become, you've become even closer to, you know, and, and also I think the social construction here in the UK, I mean, you put the TV on, everyone's drinking, in you know, all the soaps, everyone's drinking, everyone's in the pub and, you know, and, and there are other ways to, to live, live your life. And, you know, and the group I think you're talking about, I mean, that sounds fantastic. You know, being in groups, I think, and, and talking around personal, you know, issues, drinking, you know, whatever the, you know, the kind of subjects are, you know, it can be so wonderful for everyone in the group, that, that kind of shared experience and, you know, really sharing, you know, what's happened in your own life and, you know, hearing about others can be such a powerful thing for people. The best thing about it, actually, it's funny because the conversations I used to have with friends late at night after too many red wines... I never used to be able to remember. So the kind of connections that I made with people in those drunken stupors were not, they, I've realized now they, they, were, they were there, but they weren't really real. And now, especially in that group, I mean, you cut out the chit chat with that, sort, with that sort of group of women. There's no, hello, how are you, where are you from? We get straight down to it. The question, when, as soon as you meet someone is, so why are you here? And the story comes out. I mean, and the stories are amazing. So those late night drunken conversations I'm having now at nine o'clock in the morning over a cup of tea, and I'm getting to remember them, which, you know, which I haven't been able to remember nights and conversations for a long time. So it definitely means I'm getting a better connection with, with people and, and making, making sort of stronger friendships. Um, am I right in saying, uh, just re rereading the email, so you've got a, a blog now that you Yeah, have so up? when I gave up drinking, I, I decided to start writing. My brain suddenly started working. It had been pickled for many, many years. And suddenly all these cogs started turning and I started writing. I actually wrote a book in the first 18 months of me giving up drinking, which I'm in the pro process of trying to get published. Um, called A Thousand Wasted Sundays. Um, and then from then on, I've, I started writing a blog, like a day-to-day -day journal of what it's like to be a sober parent and what it's like to, to be the one who, who is standing at the bar with an orange juice, um, which has been really my therapy. Um, it's been my way of, of letting everything out and 
and getting getting my feelings onto paper has been has been really really important for me. Yes, yeah, so I started drunkmummysobermummy.com about a year ago, and yeah, it gets lots of reads, and yeah, I get interviewed on on the news and things about drinking culture, and yes, yeah, so I don't know what quite I'm becoming, whether I'm sort of carving out a career in being some sort of professional party pooper. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's good though. It's good to have those sort of things out there. Um, I kind of feel like here you're more like to drink at home than you are to go out because I think most, obviously, you probably agree, most people drive, so you can't really go and have a drink. Whereas London, you've got the public transport, so you don't have to worry about getting home. You've got cabs, you've got public transports. Uh, definitely, if I went here, I went out drinking once. I think with my friends out in the city. You have to leave early because you. Can't, it's really difficult to get home otherwise. So you don't really tend to drink that yeah, much. Yeah, it's probably a good thing, isn't it? I suppose that stops people drinking so much. But I suppose with COVID, everyone's been at home and ordering boxes of wine. That I heard that the, the 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 wine companies, online wine companies, have kind of cashed in on COVID because everyone's just at home drinking more than ever. And apparently, the statistics are now through the roof with women, especially drinking more wine than ever to sort of drown out the the isolation and the homeschooling so yeah it's, it's i don't think that you know this i do say that this um sober curious movement is amazing but yet i think it's being you know quickly followed up you know from behind by covid and that's kind of probably ruining uh, people's, people's oh, yeah. yeah isolation <laughs> and probably creating more alcoholics than ever to be honest but We'll have to see what happens there. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'll share. We will share your link on our socials and stuff. When obviously once the this podcast is recorded. Um, but what sort of coping strategies would you say you use to help with anxiety? So, I mean, obviously, not drinking is my main one. Um, I did I did cognitive behavioural therapy as well, which was sort of combined with my therapy. Um, um, so actually, that was that was another good coping mechanism. But also taking all the all the stress out of my life. I know that sounds like a very hard thing to do because I've got three young children, and I just I just think sometimes I need to step out of it um, and and find some time on my own. So now, if I'm feeling that anxiety, I do feel the normal stresses of strain of, of motherhood more than anything else. I wouldn't say it's extreme panic like it used to be, but my, I just go for a walk and get some time out. For me, that's, that's how I can sort of, you know, gather myself and, and come back with a, with a breath of fresh air and, and a new attitude. But I definitely have to take time out every now and again, whether it's a massage or a, or a walk or... Or just something that you know means I have some time on my own, taking care of my my mental health. Yeah, and I guess self self care, you know, it's so important. I mean, the, the I guess when I hear the walking and the kind of getting out, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you're putting in a bit of self care. You're kind of having a pause, but you know, but there's also something about you know the exercise. I mean, exercise, yeah. all sorts of exercise. You know, it doesn't really matter what it is: walking, running, weights. It, it's all really, really brilliant for anxiety. And, you know, in fact, in some research studies, it's kind of, it's the effect on, the positive effect of 
guys on anxiety you know he's better than antidepressants better than medication so you know the walking i think is probably the best thing you can do being out in nature i think is also really really helpful for anxiety you know but just as you say victoria just taking a pause sometimes just you know and it is difficult i think with a young family but just being able to take a breath i think is really helpful yeah definitely that is definitely what i need because i mean they do drive me mad but then i think sometimes i i have to sit back and be grateful for them um especially during covid and things like that you know when times are when times are getting a bit intense and feelings are and emotions are wrought it is essential to just sit back and be grateful for what we have and and understand that you know there are other people suffering more and you know i know it's relative to to your own life but but just to realize just to sit back and realize you know i've got a roof over my head i've got a kind happy family and i've got enough i've just got enough and that and that is enough yeah um have you got anything you'd like to add mark or um just just i just wanted to thank victoria for for sharing her story and you know, and I, I guess from what you say, Victoria, from your journey, you know, I guess I hear that you've you've been on a you know a real journey of personal growth, you know, and now you're transmuting that journey, you know, in helping others, which I think is just wonderful. And I guess a lot of people are going to be really helped by hearing your journey and and looking at you know the kind of difficulties that you described early on, and then seeing where you are now. I mean, that's going to be so helpful for people. I hope so. That would be lovely if I could help people. I would, I would really love that. That would be the aim, I suppose. I think once you, I think it's very common when people get clean or get sober or you know achieve something. I think the natural thing is to then try and try and help others, and that that is definitely the direction that I I want to pursue. Sure. Thank you for joining us, Victoria. Um, just. Uh, we will have all Victoria's like her, her blog shared on our socials and our website. Um, go and check it out and have a read. I'm, I'm gonna go have a read shortly. Yeah. And I'm sure it's very interesting. On there. Don't judge me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and just it's good to hear different sides of people with anxiety because obviously we had someone different on the video podcast talking about their life with anxiety and then we've got a different story um but there are obviously different causes of anxiety and it's a big deal um and if you guys that are listening haven't checked them out already go and check out our um film anxious me and anxious me too um and anxious me too two years on and the video podcast and i'd just like to say thank you again to mark for joining me on the podcast and thank you to everyone for listening